And one of the reasons this is interesting is because if something goes wrong in the space station, you don't have to send the rocket all the way there to replace it. You can just 3D print it on the spot. Uh, and I think these situations, we just, um, we're slowly becoming more aware of them. Uh, and I think this pandemic is sort of almost a societal experiment in that sense, because when we had shortages of personal protective equipment, we had to go into, okay, what capacity do we have as a society to manufacture besides, besides the big factories? Uh, people have 3D printers at home. Why can't they not print their own uh, personal protective equipment? And uh, so they, they used 3D printers in universities and colleges and in, in my university as well uh, contributed. Um, and, and I think there are ways to take advantage of that um, with, with more awareness. And I think what this pandemic has opened our eyes to is that we need to increase our capacity of what we're able to to manufacturing on the spot and on demand uh, because it's, it's going to be difficult to just predict exactly what what we're going to need uh, in the next crisis and i think just being the flexibility that 3d printing provides is is going to be very attractive 3d printing stands at the dawn of a potential industrial revolution allowing for rapid prototyping high customization and removing the barriers between production and consumption. Our guest today is Carole Sriat, a mechanical engineer and PhD candidate at Concordia University, Canada. He researches various materials for 3D printing and manufacturing, including nanomaterials and carbon composites. He focuses on stereolithographical techniques, which apply light in a 3D printing setup to shape liquid materials. He works on challenges such as making those materials be able to withstand sunlight or making them more robust. Join us in our conversation with Carol to learn more about the cutting edge research that he is doing, why he's concerned about the social implications of his research and why he leads an initiative that tackles exactly those concerns. Welcome to the second interview of the UTX podcast. I'm Ani. And I'm Valentin. And today we talk with Carolis Riatz, a PhD student from Concordia University in Canada, focusing on re material, researching materials for 3D printing and other applications. Carol, so nice to have you. How are you? Thank you for having me. It's nice to see you again. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, we've covered 3D printing and we've, uh, we've actually been quite excited about how much it could change the world um, and how it is one of those technologies that is really scientific and kind of futuristic, but it's still something that is within our reach. Um, so it's really exciting to talk to someone who's kind of at the forefront of that, uh, who is uh, pushing those boundaries forward. So. Maybe just shortly to like about yourself um, uh, and your and your research, uh, what exactly you're you're uh, doing in that field. Yeah, so I'm uh, right now I'm a PhD candidate at Concordia University in Montreal, uh, Canada, and I'm also a public scholar there as well. And uh, I started getting very passionate about uh, about three D printing back when I was an undergrad. Uh, feels like 100 years ago, um, where I, um, I got in, uh, part uh, I participated in engineering competition and my participation was 
in the in the science communication category talking about 3D printing. And at the time, it it was sort of a new thing that that people were getting very excited about. And we actually won first place. Um, and um, back in my undergrad, I did a couple of research internships uh, trying to start a couple of projects uh, with with professors here uh, with Professor Alfutrich and uh, Paula Adams here. And I just never left. Uh, so I, I started my master's uh, project uh, with, bo with both of those professors as well on, on making new materials for 3D printing. And uh, my PhD followed uh, the same, same trajectory. So now your, your research focuses on one specific technique um, or, or on, on materials and researching materials for one specific technique in 3D printing. Could you elaborate a little bit um, on either of those? So what are the, maybe we start with the materials that you're looking for, and then also how does this connect with, with the whole idea of 3D printing and, and additive manufacturing? Yeah, so the process, the 3D printing process that I focus on is called stereolithography 3D printing, which essentially uses liquid epoxy uh, um, that, that solidifies with light. So, Epoxy is essentially glue, and what you buy in, in the stores usually is glue that solidifies with heat. The glue that I use uses light. Um, so you have a, a 3D printing laser that traces, um, and, and then the, the liquid would solidify in the, in the places where the laser would, would pass. Um, and then one layer at a time, you get a 3D, uh, 3D printed shape. So they, there are a couple of challenges with the materials that exist for this technology. One is that it's unstable under sunlight. Uh, so, and that's because the same UV that in the 3D printing laser is also on sunlight, which is why you put sunscreen in the beach. Um, and so when you 3D print apart using this process and leave it outside for a couple of weeks, uh, the initiators that are still inside absorb sunlight and continue to trigger polymerization reactions. And then that would make the part very brittle and it just breaks apart. So it's not useful. You cannot make anything that would last uh, for, for months. The second problem is that these are plastic. So they're categorically weaker than uh, things that you make with metals. And so the this technology right now is just mostly used for modeling, just to make like a, a, a demonstration of some sort, but it's not used to make functional parts. And this is the problem that I would like to address. Um, so in my master's research, um, I, I focus on creating new catalysts that are sensitive to light that is exclusively outside the solar spectrum. So I can have that in a 3D printing laser, um, but not in sunlight. So that way it's more stable. And then in, and, and that also went into my PhD as well. And then the second project that I'm working on is making those materials stronger. Uh, and the way I try to do that is by 3D printing um, graphene liquid crystals, um, which is essentially just a fancy way of saying I, I want to 3D print with graphene. Uh, and, and graphene, as, as, as you might know, is, is the strongest material we know, uh, but that strength exists only at the nanoscale. Uh, and the big challenge with it is how do you translate this strength into a macroscopic um, part. Um, so this is this is my research in a nutshell, and it's it sort of branched into quite a few different projects, uh, just looking at each step that you need um, to to reach that end goal of making materials for stereolithography 3D printing uh, that would allow for the technology to be used in functional parts. Um, one last thing I want to mention is that 
ceratosography is one process out of many and with three different things. So there's, you can see different with metals already and, and uh, there's plastics, there's chocolates, there's biomaterials, there's, uh, you can see different with moon dust, um, which is uh, quite interesting because then you can send a rocket to the 3D printer and, and just use the material you find on the moon to build a colony, right? Um, Amazing. Um, so it, 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 my goal is to make stereosography on uh, a, a potential technologies that you use to make functional parts, uh, because there are other technologies that exist uh, that you can do that, but you also have a lot of drawbacks that stereosography does not have. So why did you choose stereolithography as your main research area? Why do you want to work with liquids? Where do you see the advantages of focusing on that? Um, so, so right now the replacement, the, the way 3D printing is replacing conventional manufacturing is through metal 3D printing. Um, and there are a couple of problems with that. One is that it's, um, it's very energy intensive. Uh, so let's say you 3D print with, with titania, you have, you have a, like a bed of powder, uh, of titania powder and you have to heat that right below the melting temperature of the area. So it's not molten yet, but it's just close enough. And then you have a, a laser that locally heats uh, those titanium powder um, to center into a solid, right? Uh, and so this is very energy intensive. And I, I'm somebody who also really cares a lot about the climate crisis. And, and, and I think it's really important that the technologies we develop are um, take that into account and how much energy they, they consume. So that's one uh, issue. The other part is, is that the parts that you make with metal 3D printing don't have the same kind of qualities that you get with stereosography because the surface roughness is very bad. Uh, and there are ways to mitigate that, but it's always added processes that at some point it becomes, um, it takes away the advantage of 3D printing because it becomes more complicated to get to a reasonable part. And so one of the research, uh, at the beginning of my project, I went to a 3D printing company called Access Prototype here in Montreal. Uh, and they mentioned that they have a lot of uh, clients or a, a lot of projects trying to make 3D printed parts for the cockpit in an airplane. Um, but the quality of the 3D printed and metal 3D printed part is, is not very good that if they have the choice to switch to stereosography because the surface finish is much better, since you would do that, but the reasons you cannot is because it's very unstable. You will not get to an airplane with parts that are made with stereosography right now because it's, you know, a couple of weeks it'll break apart. It's not safe. Um, and so if you are able to just address the stability problem, even if the parts are still plastics that are categorically weak, um, they will already have many more applications replacing metal 3D printing. Um, because if it's, if it's not a high stress application, but you have a better quality part, then you're able to replace it. And could graphene be the potential solution to the problems you mentioned? So I think graphene could help with the strength uh, issue, not the stability, not necessarily the stability problem. Um, so these are two distinct problems, and I think eventually somehow this research has to be combined uh, so that you have a stable and strong part. Um, graphene would help make the part uh, stronger. So my goal with that, so right now, right now there are a lot of research making uh, graphene paper, for example, where we have the graphene sheets uh, oriented to, uh, parallel to one another. So you have like, um, yeah, parallel sheet. Um, and these paper uh, have already strengths higher than, than some of the metals uh, like aluminum and so on. Um, and the reason the, the reason that works in, in research is because they have heat curing. So they have the um, epoxide groups on graphene oxide uh, con 
reacting with one another so that those sheets are actually bonded to one another. And so the, the strengths of the, 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 the graphene sheets, which are the strongest material we know, but that strengths also exist only in nanoscale, is translated into bigger parts. It doesn't capture the entire strengths of the graphene, obviously, because uh, the graphene, graphene oxide weakens the part, and also you're, you're still bonding things together. It's like having a brick that's very strong, but you still have to bond them with cement, right? The, the wall is not necessarily as strong as a brick. Um, but my goal is to be able to do this process with light, because then if I can do that with light, then I can 3D print graphene. Uh, graphene oxide. Uh, right now, what, what's what's possible with the research is with heat. Um, and as, as I said, I, I just want to do that with light because then you can 3D print uh, using stereolithography with graphene. And if I'm able to get uh, strengths or mechanical properties that's comparable to what's already being achieved in literature with heat curing, uh, then that's already a big step. It's a big um, big improvement over what currently exists in terms of stereolithography. Um, and you know there are different ways of doing this. It doesn't have to like the the photo cured um, part with graphene doesn't have to already achieve these high properties right away. You can 3D print with light to get the shape, and then you can do post processing with heat uh, so that it's, it's stronger. Um, so this is right now my second project uh, that I'm working on. Uh, could you also extend on the other side when when we look at what potential sources of the spectrum we could use when you when you when you're saying light, what could be yeah. suitable for for conducting stereolithography in that sense? What could be something so right now? Yeah, so right now the ozone layer blocks everything below three hundred nanometer, um, which is why we don't all get cancer. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> so right now, if if you're able to have the the foot curing reaction triggered by light that's below 300 nanometer, uh, exclusively below 300 nanometer. So you could have an initiator that has absorption below, like the peak absorption is below 300 nanometer, but it still be some, have some sensitivity uh, to light above 300 nanometer. So if you have a catalyst that is responsive only to light below 300 nanometers, then in theory at least, or uh, in principle, you're able to 3D print because you can make lasers that have light below 300 nanometer. Um, but when you leave it outside, the ozone layer sort of protects you. It's like the big coatings that exist around the planet. Because um, right now, the way it's being mitigated is that they have coatings on top uh, of parts to make them last longer, but it doesn't prevent the problem. It's like putting sunscreen again. It, you're literally putting sunscreen on top of the part. Uh, it goes away um, and it slows down. So it's a part instead of breaking up in like a week or two, it breaks up in, in a month or two. It's still a problem. Um, my goal is to eliminate the whole uh, root cause of it. Wow. So th this is, um, I guess, this if if this happens to be to become true, I guess there's a lot of applications for it in the future. And when we look at the different industries that 3D printing or new manufacturing techniques, uh, that additive manufacturing techniques are being applied to, we ourselves we think about manufacturing and also like a bit more out there stuff like food. For you, why is it really exciting to you to focus on these things? What, what, what does it make your heart smile when you when you can solve these problems? So, so is, is now as an engineer, when you design a part with conventional machining, you're always worried about the limitation uh, because of manufacturing. It's not design limitation. It's really just um, where the cutting edge is going to come come from so that you're able to make a part uh, that you're trying to design. So if you're trying to drill a hole in the wall, you need to access a wall. The drill needs to be close to the wall so that you can drill the hole. 
Um, but with 3D printing, you can make very, very complicated shapes, uh, some of which are impossible to machine, right? Um, just simply impossible. Um, but beyond that, it's also, you can have very complicated shapes that are would have been very, very expensive with conventional machining, um, but would be just uh, completely possible um, and, and reasonable to do with 3D printing because you're adding layers. Uh, so it doesn't really matter how complicated the design is. Right, and as, as an engineer, this is, I feel like this is everybody's dream in terms of engineering that I just wanna imagine something and I wanna be able to make it. Um, I, I don't wanna be sort of chained or restrained by, uh, by the manufacturing limitation. And I think this is um, sort of the promise of 3D printing. But right now the bigger problem is that even if I can make whatever I can dream of in terms of design, I cannot use it because this, right now the materials doesn't exist uh, where you're able to make something that's usable. Um, so I think about, again, I, I, my background is in aerospace, so I, I think about airplanes quite a bit. Quite a bit. Um, but let's say you make very uh, energy efficient design um, or aerodynamically efficient design, whatever, um, that would consume less fuel and, and be lighter and all these things. Um, and the only reason you cannot make it is because the material is weak. So you, you can 3D print it, you probably cannot manufacture it conventionally because it, it's too complicated. Uh, but if I can 3D print it, I can see it, I can test it in a wind tunnel, but it will, it will break apart in, in two weeks. Uh, this is a big problem. So if I'm able to eliminate this or at least mitigate this problem, uh, I'll feel much better. Yeah, yeah so uh, you mentioned that uh, like specifically aeroplanes. So what specific parts like so um, we discussed that there might be some applications um, for or, or like in some cases, actually 3D printing is already being used um, in, in rockets and, and aircraft. But like in the grander context of rockets, aerospace and then space, uh, what do you think 3D printing will be able to do? So I, I think what we, what we, in terms of parts, we're talking about lower stress um, parts of, of uh, in the airplane. So we're not talking about things like in the engine where there's a hot, uh, high heat and high pressure. Um, I think this is sort of the, the beginning, sort of your testing with, with uh, uncritical parts uh, that don't have to withstand a lot of stress. Um, and the, the, one of the challenges of 3D printing is because almost every part is, is slightly different. Um, so there's, there's going to be a, uh, a lot of work and, and repeatability and, and testing to make sure that uh, every part you're making actually meets all the requirements. Um, so, I mean, for example, think of if you have an alloy or, or a titanium plaque, right? You make your sandal sample and, and, and test it, but with, with 3D printing, you're making very, very complicated shapes. It's actually very hard to measure exactly what the properties are of that. Um, and so there's a lot of, um, there's gonna need to be a lot of work around that. How do you standardize testing for 3D printed parts? Um, and how do you regulate the whole thing and, and make sure that it's repeatable? Um, yeah. Uh, can you extend again on the different properties that 3D printed materials might have? For instance, an airplane, it might be lighter. Can you can save some weight. What are like the exciting properties that you see where really, apart from the, the idea of rapid, prototyping and, and making things faster and being able to, as you said, do all the things that you imagine to do. What are really the, the, the main properties where you see, okay, it has big advantages in comparison to traditional materials? I think when we talk about making things lighter, right? So, okay, with stereosography, because you're not using metal, it's naturally gonna be lighter. Um, the, but 
in terms of making things lighter by design, uh, so think of a, a hollow sphere, right? Um, it's lighter than if you have a full sphere, sphere right? Because the, the core is, is gone. Uh, and this is sort of the kind of things that you're almost able to make with 3D printing where you can sort of hollow out certain parts as long as you have the right properties. Um, that way, by design, you're making uh, what, what you 3D print lighter. And I think this is exciting for me as somebody who wants to fight the climate crisis and lower uh, our energy uh, dependence and, and efficiency. Uh, because then if you can make parts lighter, then you don't need as much fuel uh, to fly them, right? Um, and that also makes it a bit even more possible um, when we talk about uh, electrifying air, like airplanes. Uh, so you don't have to burn fuel, you can use electricity and you can use batteries. If you can lower how much energy you need, you're a bit closer. Um, and, and just, yeah, so I think it, it just in terms of efficiency, I think this is what excites me. Uh, but there are quite a few different properties that I think excite different people. Um, as well. But at the end of the day, it, it really depends on the materials that you're going to end up developing, because right now existing material, you're very limited by them. So it's hard to speak about material properties now, because I don't know what exactly are the materials that's going to actually meet um, or is going to allow 3D printing to be used in functional uh, applications uh, beyond what's being used right now. So that's, that's, that leads us to the next question, which is what are the main challenges to 3D printing adoption? And it seems that from what you're saying, yeah, obviously as you're researching on it, there is still a lot to do in terms of developing the technology further. So is this the main reason or do you also think there's other societal reasons, let's say, or lack of funding even that 3D printing has not sort of received the mainstream attention and the, the adoption cycle that it sort of deserves? Um, it's complicated. <laughs> so with, so technologically, I think at least for, from an in industry point of view, I think material is the biggest obstacle. Uh, societally, like if you talk about having 3D printers replace normal printers at home, uh, I, I think this is, um, we have to be very, very careful with that because um, I don't want people to 3D print a new pair of glasses every day because that will create so much waste. Uh, and, I, and I think we have to be very, very careful about the social impacts of, of the technology we're having uh, and we're, develop, we're developing. And so it has to be very, um, there has to be a conversation and sort of societal discourse of how to use technology without creating a, a whole uh, list of new problems. Um, and so, so that's that what tends to be my concern because I, as I, as I mentioned, I, I care a lot about the climate crisis and the waste crisis. And at the same time, I'm working on, on this technology that has a lot of potential advantages when it comes to fighting these issues, but there's also risk when it comes to people just creating everything that comes to their mind, uh, even if it's not necessarily uh, wise to do that. Having said that, I don't think that, like I haven't met a lot of people who don't know what street printing is right now. Um, and, and so I think there's a lot of awareness. And I think back when I first started to learn about this technology, it was new and there's a lot of hype about it. And I think at some point we sort of started getting this realization where we're taking a step back and, and realizing the limitation of the existing level of technology. And I think what's needed is research, um, trying to develop the materials that are, allows us allows industry to take advantage of it uh, so that we are, we're more efficient and, and um, the other example I would mention is that at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, there was a tweet by our prime minister, Justin Trudeau, who essentially called on everybody who has a 3D printer um, to 3D print uh, personal protective equipment, uh, like face shields and, and, and so on. 
Um, and I think this is almost a very good demonstration of what's possible with 3D printing when you're sort of taking ownership of manufacturing because then you're no longer dependent on things coming, um, being shipped from across the ocean uh, where you have the ability to build critical supplies on demand and on the spot without having to do all the transportation and shipment and, and storage. Uh, and I, I think this is something that we haven't taken good advantage of, and I think we slowly are. So, I mean, for example, there's uh, 3D printers on, on the International Space Station. And one of the reasons this is interesting is because if something goes wrong in the space station, you don't have to send a rocket all the way there to replace it. You can just 3D print it on the spot. Uh, and I think these situations, we just, um, we're slowly becoming more aware of them. Uh, and I think this pandemic is sort of almost a societal experiment in that sense, because when we had shortages of, personal protective equipment, we had to go into, okay, what capacity do we have as a society to manufacture besides the big factories? Uh, people have 3D printers at home. Why can't they not print their own uh, personal protective equipment? And uh, so they, they used 3D printers in universities and colleges and in, in my university as well uh, contributed. Um, and, and I think there are ways to take advantage of that uh, with, with more awareness and I think what this pandemic has opened our eyes to is that we need to increase our capacity of what we're able to to manufacturing on the spot and on demand uh, because it's, it's going to be difficult to just predict exactly what what we're going to need uh, in the next crisis and i think just being the flexibility that 3d printing provides is is going to be very attractive once again we have to do this very carefully because we should not have people 3d printing a new pair of glasses every day um, do you think that in the future when, let's say, it will be available to people that everyone can sort of 3D print their own stuff at home and the whole idea of we're producing too much waste and consuming too much carbon dioxide intensifies, is there any other way out than, let's say, have purely biodegradable, biodegradable materials that are fully recyclable, sort of a circular economy approach? Or should we also just rethink our connection to stuff, just consume, uh, just produce and consume less stuff? Do you think technology is, or what, what will happen faster? Will we become more conscious faster, so to speak, or will technology help us getting there? What is the way out, so to speak? For you? I don't know what will happen. I know what should happen. <laughs> so, um, okay, so this is a couple, couple of points here. One is that there's absolutely no alternative to reducing our waste uh, and, and reducing how much stuff do we, we need. Um, so when we talk about biodegradable and compostable plastic, a couple months ago, I visited a composting facility with, with my team because I, I run another project called Waste Not Why Not, um, which tries to help the community learn how to compost and, sort of, and, and reduce their waste. And the composting pile was so full of, of plastic and a lot of it, they said, is, is things that are marked as biodegradable and compostable. So even though something is marked as, as biodegradable and compostable, doesn't mean it's actually compostable. Um, and so there's a lot of greenwashing out there that exists. Um, it's not necessary to say that it's impossible to compost things like PLA, which is made out of corn, uh, corn starch, um, but it takes much more complicated technology that simply doesn't it doesn't really exist right now, or does, it's not widespread uh, and it's not used widely yet. Um, and it not only is it not composted, it is also contaminates the recycling stream because this plastic is not, it, it looks similar to other kinds of plastic. So it contaminates that. Uh, and so actually it's the right place to put compostable plastic as a garbage in most places. Um, and so it's, it's hard to just use that as, as an excuse. Um, 
having having said that, as there also as a project uh, here at Macquarie called CP3, which is trying to collect uh, 3D printed parts, and uh, so we're talking about things that are made those plastic filament like ABS and PLA, and and just try to uh, use that into creating more uh, or or, or trade, um, recycling that into new plastic filament for 3D printing. So use a 3D printed part, and then you go through the machine to make uh, turn it back into filament. And that's, that's an okay approach, but at some point, um, everything that we generate actually goes to landfill eventually uh, because the quality of everything decreases. Uh, and so I think what needs to happen is there has to be a lot of awareness uh, in, in making sure that people understand that recycling, compostable plastic, all of these things are tools, but they are not solutions. Um, and at the end of the day, they have to reduce um, our waste and, and the reality is that not everything we buy we need um, and I think it just we have to be a bit more aware of that. So you also lead the the waste not want not campaign do you see any um, possible marriage between kind of composting and recycling and 3d printing um, and if so are you like considering any kind of uh, research trends in in that direction? Hmm. <laughs> so, so the waste not is, is, is has absolutely nothing to do with my research. Uh, it, it started as a side project uh, that that just um, grew very fast, very quickly, uh, and and um, I, I I just love it so much that I, I always continued. Um, so, hmm. How how do you connect that with three D printing? I think this because three D printing is going to replace a lot of manufacturing in the future, there'll be a lot of things that are going to be made by 3D printing. And even though, you know, you guys are, are talking about how slow it has been to, to adopt 3D printing, it, it is the future. The, at some point, no matter how slow it is, we're going to get to a point where a lot of what we do, uh, a lot of what we make is, is going to be made by 3D printing. And I think that conversation around waste has to happen uh, when it comes to about uh, what's being made by, by 3D printing. Um, yeah, so, so, so projects like CB3 that I mentioned at Concordia that, that tries to sort of mitigate that uh, is, is helpful. And I also think there has to be a lot of work on, on education around 3D printing waste uh, as well. Um, when you can imagine the, the future sort of, of 3D or even 4D printing and the materials that we will be able to use for, for these manufacturing processes, do you have some sort of dream where for, for what's going to happen, for what we, we will be able to do that we can have like, uh, I don't know, material, just an example of materials that inherit the computer chip and then some, some sort of smart dust or something like that, where you have some inherent connectivity added to the material where, I mean, it's not that out there, but I mean, how, in the future where you see like, what will be widely adopted? Let's say we go 20 years into the future. Have you ever thought about yourself? Okay, where can I take this myself as well in, in that future? So I think uh, with more research in terms of material, I think industry is going to use uh, 3D printing more and more and, and create things that are simply not possible right now. Because so right now when we're talking about adding conductivity and all those things, these are because you're able to 3D print with, mul with multiple material and, and almost 3D print uh, assemblies with movable parts without, um, uh, without having to fasten anything or like you can do this all at one shot. I think uh, this more integrated approach is, is um, is going to be used more and more in the future to do things that are, are, are simply not possible right now. Um, so I think there's a lot of um, lot of room for industry to to take advantage of 3D printing and and stereolithography is 
it's not technology that you can 3D print at home with. It's it costs like uh, I don't know. I remember when I started, it was around quarter quarter million dollars uh, to to make it, to have a 3D printer. So it's not something that's like an everyday kind of use for home. Uh, it's more like an industrial process. Um, so I think for industry, I think there's a lot of rooms there. For individuals, there's also a lot of rooms where we're talking about um, children and, and people making designs and they just see what they're, they're making and, and sort of making changes this way and sort of taking ownership of the things that they use and how they're designed and how they are made. Um, but again, there's also social risks that we have to, we have to be aware of. Uh, so I think 3D printing is something that excites me a lot and also scares me a lot. Um, so, and, and I think I think that's true with almost every technology that that we we develop. There's a social impact, positive and negative, and and I think that all of it has to be part of the conversation. Uh, the pattern that we oftentimes see is that exactly those people that know most about the technology, just like in your case about 3D printing are also almost scared about it the most. And when we talk about the famous person, Elon Musk saying that manufacturing is the bottleneck for human progress. And we sort of, we put, put a controversial question whether um, engineering is what drives progress forward most or whether it is the, let's say the software side, the, the intelligence to it. Where would you stand on that point? Would you, if, if there was like a spectrum, where do you say, would, what do you say is like the, the core of innovation of humanity happening? Uh, oh boy. Uh, so at the beginning, I think, I think before, I mean, internet and computers are not, um, are not that old, right? And I think before that, the, the, more, the, more, we're able, the more we're able to improve manufacturing, uh, that was driving our progress until the computer and, and internet started to, uh, to take off and that, Sort of switch our how we're how we're moving forward, and I think it's it's going to be like a um, how do you say um, sort of going back and forth between the two, um, and and sort of like a yeah like a pendulum uh, of some sort. I, I don't think there's only one of them. I think at some point also they're going to almost merge because when we talk about 3D printing, uh, we're talking about things that we can program um, and and almost replace manual labor, which also has another social risk uh, behind it. Uh, but we're talking about computers uh, improving the designs on their own and 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 um, and just programming the whole thing uh, in terms of um, improving software as well for 3D printing to allow us to improve the parts that we're making with 3D printing. Um, yeah, so I think I think I think it's it's a it's a little pendulum that at some point it's just going to merge and it's going to be difficult in the future to dif differentiate between between the two. Um, I mean, we've already asked you sort of about the, the future and sort of your prediction of what's going to happen. And we're aware that it's quite hard to do, but uh, it's just interesting because when we get a person like you talking about these things in our, in our podcast, it's always interesting to us to sort of have a, uh, an idea of, of what you think how the future uh, will, will look like. And maybe on, on this side, if you, if you could sort of create a utopia, like... First of all, what do you think? How long will it take? Because you you, you are you're convinced that that three D printing will definitely become a, a mainstream subject, and that vast amounts of what we of the stuff that we produce will be produced by three D printer. When do you think this is going to happen? And then secondly, and especially also regarding reducing waste and and still um, increasing our living standard, which not necessarily is conflicting targets. Where do you see an a balance in the future that is ideal. Um, how, how could that future world 
look like to you? Um, so I, I don't know when, I, I think it's, it's, it's gonna be very difficult to, to do that, mostly because if you look at the beginning of the pandemic, if you ask anybody how long it would take to make new vaccines, you'll say uh, five years max. Uh, <laughs> but we have made not only one vaccine, but four, at least so far in Canada, that's been approved in, in one year, in less than one year, right? Um, so I think it's, no matter what prediction uh, you're, I, I could try to make in terms of timeline, it's, it's gonna be wrong. <laughs> um, but I, I think it's only gonna get faster uh, in terms of our, our, our transition into, from, from conventional machining to, to, to 3D printing. Um, and this other part of it too is, is nanotechnology and how nanotechnology also impacts 3D printing and the materials for 3D printing. Um, so one, one of the projects I, um, I work on is, when I talk about stability, I try to use nanoparticles to uh, as a catalyst that I can control the, what light they, they respond to. And so the, this is how I, I met Annie is uh, I went to ATH to work with Professor Batsinas um, in a particle technology laboratory for a couple of research internships. And I got to learn about how to make new nanoparticles in there and um, using the flame strip paralysis, which is essentially you have chemicals uh, that include the metal elements, you make the most flammable solvents and you literally put the whole thing on fire. It's actually quite satisfying if you're upset. Um, and, <laughs> and, and, so, um, and so I was able to make the, the right nanoparticles uh, and, and technologies like this, they are very um, versatile that you're able to manipulate and change the composition of the nanoparticle, change the properties, change the size and like this, it's just very quickly. Uh, and I think that will also sort of accelerate how we're developing new materials and how we're developing new technologies. Um, and I think it's really only starting now. I think, well, nanotechnology exists for a while, but I think it's, it's only now that's sort of picking up a lot more speed um, on how, it's, how it translates into commercial applications right away. Um, actually, Concordia um, has the first FSB in Canada now that, that um, my professor um, has has bought. Um, yeah, just after just after I came back, and in a, in a couple of weeks we'll also have uh, a big event where uh, Professor Pertinis from from ATH and Professor Alexander Taliki from Sweden and Professor Zaholgi from Carlton is going to speak about that technology. So I'm actually inviting your your viewers to oh. uh, participate. That would be great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. Also uh, to the audience, if you're interested in that and. Uh... That, that sounds really exciting. Um, something more towards, because you mentioned also nanoparticles, towards sort of your other research stream to pick up that one again. Could you elaborate a little bit more on the use of quantum dots and what are the sort of the current challenges that you're facing uh, with, with bringing those in? Yeah, so, okay. So quantum dots are, are very, very small kind of nanoparticles. So nanoparticles are already very small. Like a one nanometer is, uh, 40,000 times smaller than one human hair, right? Um, and the quantum dots are on the end, uh, are on the extreme end of that. So we're talking about things that are smaller than 10 nanometer uh, in size. And the superpower of quantum dots is that you can control their band gap energy, or in other words, the kind of light that they respond to, just by controlling their size. And this is why the, working with the flame sphere paralysis was, was very interesting because it can control the size very easily. Um, and as I mentioned earlier, I want catalysts that are able to um, respond to light that does not exist in the solar spectrum. 
And so I was able to prove in my master's that I can use semiconductor nanoparticles to photocure epoxy, which is the reaction that's used in stereoscopy 3D printing. But I didn't have the right nanoparticles that has the right band gap energy uh, that would be insensitive to sunlight. So I was able to prove it with titania, but that doesn't solve my problem because titania is also sensitive to sunlight. Um, and so by it, by being able to make quantum dots that have the band gap energy that's bigger than what's available in sunlight, uh, then I'm able to use my research in terms of using those semiconductor nanoparticles to for the cure epoxy, but use that with quantum dots. And then in principle, that would be uh, a more stable part because then I can excite the quantum dots with, with, my, with my special light. Uh, and then you can put that in sunlight and, and, and would not be affected. So this is how I'm using it. Um, and with, with FSP, I was able to make the right quantum dots. And actually, my paper is hopefully coming out soon. Um, it's, it's, it's very close. And, um, and essentially, the challenge with quantum dots are, are a couple of things. One is that they also are unstable in their own rate. Um, so if you have like um, zinc oxide quantum dots, it, it will grow over time. Um, and if you have um, used light or chemical reactions, it will also corrode. Uh, and so you have to make sure that you're able to make quantum dots that are stable. And, and the way I'm trying to make that is to do that is by embedding them in amorphous matrices. Uh, so just putting on silic in silica, uh, because then that silica sort of acts as stabilizers. But you have also to be careful when you do that because you don't want to uh, completely close off the surface because then you don't have any reaction. So you cannot put it in glass and then hope that it's going to make any, it's going to do anything. So it's, it's a balancing act. and um, so far, it seems to be going OK. Awesome. Uh, yeah, what a great outlook on what the future will look like of how we do our stuff and with which, with, with which materials. Um, any, any, any question, any other question from your side? Uh, not really. I think, yeah, it's, it's really fascinating, um, especially tackling the kind of the two main problem aspects that you mentioned, uh, stability of materials and it's kind of susceptibility to 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 light and yeah we definitely wondered because yeah like slg was invented back in the 80s um i mean it's almost 40 40 years now and it's such a revolutionary technology that we're kind of surprised that it hasn't taken the world by storm um where you could as you mentioned literally break the chains free and produce anything you want so I mean, we look forward to your work, hopefully changing that and, and uh, making it more accessible and at least in the public's eye to make it a real uh, an everyday tool. But I think, as you mentioned, yeah, there are still challenges involved, even if we solve these problems, um, waste recycling, uh, our relationship to consumption and uh, items. So there are definitely still uh, some things there, but yeah, it's it's nonetheless a very uh, right outlook. Mm -hmm. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much, Carol, for being part of the podcast and all the best for your PhD research. Thank you for having me, and uh, I really appreciate the discussion. Yeah, thanks for your time. It was uh, it was great to to not just uh, get to know kind of your work, but also to see that it's um, really driving the world forward to. A place where we have more 3D and 4D printing. And hopefully, all still less waste and, and less uh, 
yeah let's say but but as you said i think it also is on us to sort of change our mind on, on our relationship with stuff uh, otherwise it's not yeah. going to work yeah. it's, it's a fundamentally social problem um you cannot have a technological fix for it um at the end of the day we are the mm -hmm. one buying we're the one driving consumption mm -hmm. um and so it, you can talk about technology from here to the moon at the end of the day it's a social problem yeah. um so technology has a role to play but it's it's not the solution absolutely yeah well i think uh thanks a lot for for taking your time all right well thank you very much for for having me and for reaching out and it's thanks nice to catch up with you yeah for nice sure. all right well enjoy have a good thanks. day you too have a good have day nice. thank you very much